Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. Is that Costanza over there? <laughs> what are you doing here? What? Am I crazy? Or didn't you quit? When? Friday. Oh, what, what, that? Are you kidding? I didn't quit. What? Why? You took that seriously. <laughs> Conversations about collaboration, episode 39. Kanor Bahal is my guest today. She's the founder and CEO of Mindhatch, a firm that specializes in getting companies to get better results with creativity. She is also the author of I Quit, The Life-Affirming Joy of Giving Up, we talk about the great resignation, improv comedy, saying no, and the choices that employees make. Let's rock and roll. Kenora, where does this podcast find you? Oh, it finds me sitting on my comfortable couch in Seattle, Washington. Yeah. You guys have been getting some Phoenix-type weather, huh? I know. I, I actually just, um, by happenstance, happened to miss... All of it. I took an impromptu, um, thank God for Air Miles flight to Chicago over the weekend to see my brother and his family for the first time since before the pandemic and um, didn't, didn't know the extent of the heat wave at the time I booked, but I exactly missed the worst of it. But really lucky. I'm one of the rare people in Seattle who has air conditioning. And so I had a uh, had some neighbors come stay here and get relief while I was out of town. And um, uh, yeah, but yeah, I think it was, it was brutal. And I think we're only, only now hearing like the effects of what, what happened. Yeah. Well, you seem to have good timing, not just in terms of trips, but in terms of your new book, uh, <laughs> yeah. tell, tell me a little bit about it because I think that the timing is to use a 50 cent word propitious. Yeah. I love that word. I remember that from studying for the GRE. Um, I'm showing off, damn it. <laughs> um, I won't tell you how I did on the GRE. All I'll tell you is that I studied for it. Um, so, um, um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, the, my book that uh, was released in April uh, is titled, I quit the life affirming joy of giving up. And, um, and it is timely in a way that I could never have predicted, but I think, other people around me when they heard I was writing this book last year even said, oh, wow, this is really timely. And I couldn't really put my finger on why it was feeling timely to other people. Um, this idea I'd had for about six, seven years that I was finally like making something out of. Uh, and I think maybe a lot of the people who told me it was timely last year, maybe they're part of the great resignation that we're seeing right now. <laughs> so they, they knew something was up before I did. Yeah. It's remarkable from some of the polls that I've seen something like 40 to 50% of American workers are either going to quit once the pandemic is over or will quit if they don't get the option of remote work or hybrid work. And I was reading a Wall Street Journal, Journal article earlier this week in which some people are even negotiating remote work as part of their employment contract, not as in, oh, we'll probably let people do it, but we're not sure versus no, I want it in writing. Yeah, exactly. I think that's brilliant. Like I'm, I'm always a fan of anything that puts more power into employees and workers, you know, and I, I think that's a really interesting shift that's happening right now. Um, and of course we're speaking specifically 
probably exclusively to like white collar work, you know, but, um, but I think that's great. I mean, I think at the start of the pandemic, you know, of course it was scary and uncertain, you know, but I, I also immediately, the way my brain works, I was immediately thinking like, wow, I wonder what opportunities will come from this, you know? And I think I was really hoping that like, downtown corridors and office buildings might be repurposed into like affordable housing, you know, or, or, uh, and, or shelters for homeless people, you know, and, and also this like shift of like, Hey, like now that we're all forced to do work from home, like I, I knew that like, what's going to be the result of that is people realizing like, Oh wow, it works. You know, we spent decades assuming that it wouldn't or couldn't. Right. And then when, uh, you know, the pandemic forced everyone's hands, you know, what do people do? We adapt, right? And and we we make things happen. And so um I'm really hoping that employers don't don't forget that. It does seem like some are all too eager to just go back to the before times. But yeah, I, I saw some data from I think it was the first quarter that if uh, something like three percent of the American workforce quit in one month. And if you were to prorate wow. that, that that's that's beyond uh, it's almost Amazon levels. Yeah. <laughs> for employee attrition. And I think about over my career at times that I did leave a job, in many instances, it was because the commute was insane, or it was because yeah. there was such an emphasis put on FaceTime. And I said, yeah. where are you going? It's 6pm. I go, yeah, yeah. Well, so something could come <laughs> up. I go, well, something could come up. But in theory, then I should never leave. Yes. Right. Plus you're focusing on when I'm leaving or when I'm arriving versus what I got done here. I'm not saying I should bolt every day at two and play nine holes of golf. Yeah. But it, it does seem like uh, because of this natural experiment, we've seen people get things done without a great deal of surveillance or without necessarily being there. Um, in Based on your research for the book, would that stop some people from having quit their jobs? Uh, would what have stopped? Um, this, this freedom, this lack of expectation that you always need to be in the office nine to five, a remote yeah. work is bullshit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can speak personally. So, so one section of the book is about people quitting jobs and careers and um, that the whole book is really about, you know, people realizing that choices they'd made earlier in their lives no longer match their values. Right. And so especially in like the, the section of the book about quitting jobs and careers, it's very much around, you know, like is this worth it anymore? Like, am I willing to accept the trade-offs anymore? That sort of thing. And so I think um, from my personal experience, I remember in my first career, I, um, I wasn't sick. I was not ill, but I just had like the worst case of laryngitis. I, I had no voice. And, and like the, the funny and cruel thing is that when you're working in an office and someone says, oh, hey, how are you? Da, 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 and you say, oh, I can't talk. I have laryngitis. Their first thing they say is, oh, how did you get laryngitis? And I'm like, I just told you I can't talk, you know? So after like four hours of this and people calling me, you know, and really having a hard time, like, like protecting my voice, <laughs> you know, um, I remember going to my, my deputy director and saying, hey, like, I know we've got this big thing done, but I can do it from home. Can I just do this from home? Because like, I'm not have getting any relief to like get my voice back. And his like stony eyed reply was, we don't have a work from home policy. And I kept asking, like, is that a no? And he said, we don't have a work from home policy, just like on repeat. And I was like, mm-hmm. this is nonsense, you know? And so, um, 
So I think it's that like inflexibility and frankly, inhumanity, you know, that is like so much of how our workplaces are designed, you know, I mean, and it's, it's, it's often said, and I believe it to be true that workplaces are based on a very outdated model, which is like the factory model, you know, and where it's like literally in a factory, if you're not there, you cannot be doing your work. Right. But I think in the industries and sectors you and I are talking about right now, um, that's just simply not true, you know? And um, yeah. And so I, I too quit my next job in part because I was sick of this artifice of FaceTime in the office. You know, I just like, I want to be treated like an adult, like the adult that I am, you know, to, and to be judged on my work product, you know, um, as opposed to if I'm like, visible to a manager all the time, you know? Um, and I, and I really think that like reliance on face him in the office is, um, is, you know, you call it surveillance. I think it's a really good word for it. Um, and I think it's really just born out of fear. Right. And I think the fear comes from workplaces haven't done a good enough job in figuring out how to measure performance. So yeah. people just focus on things that don't matter, like FaceTime in the office. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like that's the type of what I'll call hygiene factor. In other words, mm. if you put your face in the office, then nothing necessarily good will happen to you. But if you don't, then there's a good chance that something bad will happen to you. Mm. And that always struck me as kind of bizarre because who knows what you're doing, right? I mean, I mean you could make the argument that some people are more productive in two hours. I, there was one a consulting gig I was on and was writing database queries, blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking over at someone who was writing similar queries and he, he couldn't complete one because the way he was doing it was just really screwed up. We'll get in the details mm-hmm. versus I'm sitting there cranking them out. And the idea that we're both equally productive because they're both sitting there is insane. And I, I, I love your word, artifice, right? Yeah. Oh, he, he is there. He is working. Therefore, he must be productive. And it's bullshit. Yeah, it is total bullshit. And it's it's so like, it's just lazy management. It's lazy, you know, to, uh, to, to care about that so much. And, and again, I think it's just because people haven't done the hard work to actually figure out how to measure, measure people and their value, you know? And so, um, yeah. And so, so the book is like, you know, I, I, I learned, you know, through my various prior careers that, um, what I valued more than I could have anticipated was organizational culture, you know, and autonomy and being treated like an adult and feeling like I was working in a meritocracy, you know? And so those were kind of like my personal values that I realized by not getting those things, you know? And I, and I realized that they mattered more to me than things I thought mattered to me before, you know? And so I think um, that is definitely a through line for every person's story I share in the book is, you know, them realizing like, wait a second, this is not a match for my values. And this is not a match for who I perceive myself to be or who I want to be in the future. I couldn't agree more. And I've read a lot of anecdotes about people who've had this awakening, right? This epiphany. And if the last 15 or 16 months have taught us anything, it's that we want our work lives to revolve around our personal lives where so long it's been the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think also, um, Again, we're, 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 our, our topic is about, you know, white collar workers, people who have the privilege and the luxury of working from home, you know, but I think for people who were able uh, to be forced to work from home this past 15 months, you know, I, I imagine 
that it also gave them a lot more downtime to like ponder their values and their trade-offs and really understand like, okay, like now that I have a little bit more room to breathe, now that maybe I don't have an hour long commute, you know, now that I've experienced being home with my children and not missing out on things, you know, um, I think people probably got some more clarity, right. On what they want their lives to be like. And, and I cannot blame anyone for coming out of this and realizing I don't want to go back to the way that it was, you know, and, and trying to advocate for themselves and say, I want it both ways. I deserve both. I deserve a good job. And I also deserve to not be an absentee parent, right. Or an absentee spouse, you know, and um, I deserve to have the ability to participate in my private life as well. And from my perspective, and I couldn't agree more, here's what's interesting. Even if your current employer or the employer down the street says, yeah, we don't roll that way, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't matter because you're yeah. going to have so many other companies saying, All right, we, you know, we work from wherever, it doesn't matter, or whenever, as long as you've got, say, core hours. And I know a lot of companies have done that. So from 10 to 2 mm-hmm. in your time zone, you have to be available to take meetings, to be on calls. Yeah. Uh, this past week, Slack announced a huddle feature, which is a little bit like Clubhouse. Mm. Right? So uh, scheduling, I know Microsoft's working on this well with Teams, and there are other tools that do this. But um, rather than doing something so formal as to say, well, I can talk Tuesday at three, go to my Calendly mm-hmm. site and book it. Yeah, I need two minutes now, yeah. right? So it is interesting. It's like office hours. It's like I'm here, I'm present, I'm available for whatever comes up. Yeah. Right, right. So if interrupt me, right? Because I'm not going to be doing what Cal Newport would call deep work. Mm-hmm. But there are times in which you will need to do that, in which case you don't want to be bothered. So you'll click your status to do not disturb, or you'll quit Slack or Teams or whatever, and you'll actually get stuff done. So by definition, unless you have a separate device that's turned on looking at you all day and those things do exist. Yeah. <laughs> um, we can talk about the merits of them. I think inevitably we're, we're going to see, well, yeah, you were more productive objectively. So work wherever, uh, but to your point, not everyone will be able to do that because it's really hard for me to imagine remote food preparation and remote security guard. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's why we're talking about a very specific subset of the workforce today. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me switching gears about organizational improv. I did some oh, yeah. stalking slash research on you <laughs> and I'm going, what the hell is organizational improv? Nice. Nice. I love that. Stalking slash research. I, I do a lot of qualitative research and I, I'm tempted to change my title to qualitative stalker. That would be great. Uh, so, um, <laughs> yeah. um, so organizational improv is, you know, my, my trademark term for uh, bringing the skills, behaviors, mindsets, activities behind improv comedy and improv theater uh, into the workplace. Uh, so I, I've, I've performed and taught improv comedy for over a decade. Oh my God. I can't believe it's been over a decade. It's because you started when you were 18 years old. Oh my God. No, I started when I was 29 years old. <laughs> so I should have started when I was 18. When you read my book, you'll hear that story about why I should have started when I was 18. Um, um, but, uh, yeah. And so, um, so yeah, it's, it's my phrase for like, you know, do bringing improv into the workplace. And uh, we do that for a lot of different purposes, um, the, the bread and butter of which is, you know, um, training people in professional skills that are really important, you know, to the workplace. So we will use improv as like the learning and the teaching methodology for um, leadership skills, for customer service skills, uh, collaboration and creativity skills. Um, and also, as you might have guessed, like a lot of like organizational culture change um, initiatives as well. 
So I know one thing about improv. That's yes, yes and. Uh-huh. So yeah. would <laughs> yes and help me if I'm in customer service and I won't name a company, but I've had to deal with a few over the last week as I've had some <laughs> Mac issues. And rather than saying, no, we can't get on a Zoom call with you to share the screen or no, you can't record a Loom video or whatever yeah. and send it to us because we're not allowed to download attachment. Yes, and might be a better way of solving that problem without reverting to 67 email messages back and forth. And you're still going, you still don't understand the problem. <laughs> yeah. One, I'm very sorry you've gone through that. Um, I, I myself right now have been procrastinating on contacting several companies' customer service lines to like claw back fraudulent charges from them simply because I don't want to deal with their customer service. It's just like... And I'm someone who like, I, I am, I am okay with confrontation. I'm okay with it. And even I am just like, oh, I don't want to do that right now. You know? And so, um, um, so yeah, I, I, to your point, like, yes. And yeah, it's definitely a, a, a fundamental cornerstone of improv and the, the idea behind yes. And um, is it's about radical agreement, you know? So if you, if you say something, um, I either verbally, like literally, or uh, in a in a, a spirit, will say like yes, I agree with what you're saying. What you are saying is a foundational truth that we're both going to exist in. And then the and is a key part, which I've written about. A lot of my clients forget about that part. Is that and and now I'm going to add on. I'm going to contribute on to what you just said. Um, there's like the 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 godfather of the style of improv that I do, uh, Del Close. He has this great phrase where he says. Uh, um, don't bring a cathedral, bring a brick. And what does that mean? Like, that means that like, if we're going to build a cathedral, like I would be a total jerk if I just rolled in like, Hey, here's my cathedral. I built it all on my own. Here it is. Not only would that be jerky, but also it's probably a really crappy cathedral. Right. Um, so the yes and is like your brick. And then I layer my brick on top and then you layer your brick on top and I layer my brick on top. So it's like a cumulative creation, right? It's like hmm. the, the basis of co-creation, right? In, in improv. Um, and so, yeah, to your point about, you know, dealing with uh, this unnamed company who happens to make Max. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's so many of them. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I think like, uh, uh, yes, and can be a, a powerful mindset, even if they're like, well, Loom can't work or that can't work, but I'm going to propose a different solution, right? Or I'm going to like, let's like meet in the middle somehow, you know, or I'm not going to deny what you're telling me. You know, that often tends to be like the first thing we're told. It's like, oh, that shouldn't be happening. You're like, but I just told you it is, you know, so just like, believe me here, you know, and so don't <laughs> deny my reality. It, it reminds me a bit of, remember that show Inside the Actor's Studio with James oh, Lipton? Yeah. Uh, um, at the end, they would do the questionnaire by Bernard Pivot, mm -hmm. and it was something like, "What's your favorite noise? What's your favorite um, word? Uh, your favorite curse word?" Uh -huh. And one of them was least favorite word, and I forget which actor or actress said it, but I'll never forget the actual response. Which what word do you hate? And it was no, yeah. right? Particularly in the context of doing something creative, right? It's one thing if something isn't working, but basically you're not even going to try it this way. Yeah. As someone who's got zero. Um, acting chops. I, I just know that for me personally, when someone says, no, you can't do that, it makes me want to do it. And there's a psychological yeah, effect for it. I forget the name of it, but it's something to the effect of if you tell kids they can't have broccoli, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. They're going to want to score some broccoli. Totally. Yep. Yep. I was, I was, my mind was going to like being a kid as well. Like you're like, I think we're like, we're built to be questioners, right? We're that, that's why we have all the amazing brains that we have, you know, and then somewhere along the way that gets beaten out of us and we stop being rewarded for questioning, you know, and, and therefore learning. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I employ improv, um, tools a lot when I'm doing my innovation work and especially when I'm, you know, designing and delivering, um, ideation sessions. And, you know, the, the, the phrase I I say is like, you know, most teams, most humans, like we, we suck at the divergent thinking, right? We're really good at saying no, we're really good at applying criteria and coming up with reasons often well-founded for why something can't work. But where people often need like the outside help the most is for that beginning stage of like, okay, let's fill the pipeline. And because there's always going to be checkpoints and opportunities to say no to something, but it's harder to like change mindsets and create a structure uh, for a limited period of time where you're just saying yes, 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 yes. Right. And trusting that like, okay, we can say no later on. Now is not the time to say, to say no. Um, So I always encourage clients, you know, like we want to play the percentages you know, and if you want more good ideas in life, you need to start with some more ideas, period, you know, and, and then we'll figure out how to narrow, how to implement, how to get consensus, all of those things. There's always time for that. And I found, again, knowing nothing beyond just yes and for improv, mm-hmm. but just in terms of experimentation, that the more mature the organization and the more successful the organization, the less likely they'll be to do that. I'm working on a project not now I can't talk about. And they said, yeah, we're doing this all over email. I said that I'm not doing it. Mm. Right. And I finally got them to, after well, saying, what was the this that they were doing? What was it? Uh, it's a writing project. Oh, got it. And I said, I'm not going to get 17 emails per day. We're going to use a hub like teams or Slack, or I don't care. Tell me which one, because I, it's just the way that I roll. It's like, as I've said before, you don't go running with a disc man. Right. Because it's 2021. If it were 1998, you go, yeah, Walkman, Discman, who cares? Uh, And I got to tell you, the answer was immediately no until I said, okay, then I'm just not going to do it. And you can find someone else. And then they finally said, fine, uh, we'll make you the guinea pig on this one. But getting them to shift from one text based tool to another, I would argue, is just a better overall tool. That wasn't the argument, whether it was a good idea. It was just, we don't, don't do it that way. We won't even consider it. Yeah, it was that we don't have a work from home policy. Therefore, yes, exactly. Not, therefore, I will not think beyond what I know. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I, yeah, 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 um, yeah. And that's uh, it's hard when you know. I mean, a lot of when I'm working with leaders, especially, you know, in the improv context, you know, it's um, like it, I think I think our workplaces are still set up where people ascend to leadership roles, C suite roles because they've said no a lot, right? And people are still rewarded for saying no a lot. And um, and I think that needs to shift. You know, I think we need to make saying yes um, perceived as less risky that I know it to be, you know? it's um, So I'd like to see people being promoted and elevated in organizations because they're taking productive risks you know, and smart risks as opposed to just no risks and just towing the line, right? And just steady stating their way um, up into upper management, you know? And so um, so that when I'm working with leaders, um, it's a lot about using, you know, yes and as well as like other um, improv tools. 
um, for being able to receive new ideas, right? And the importance of using a yes and mindset um, because then it becomes our idea and then you get to have an influence over it, you know? And, um, but also like the first time you say no, someone bringing you an idea that they think is great, guess what? They're never going to bring you an idea again. You know, like- oh, it's so funny that you mentioned that. I was on a consulting project in 2004 and we were helping a hospital move away from a legacy system to a new one. Details aren't terribly interesting, but there was this one woman on the project who consistently put the kibosh on anything. And mm-hmm. I said to my friend, Eric, watch, I'm going to get this woman to say I disagree. And I made what I thought was a cogent argument to do something over two minutes. And I, I kid you not, the first words out of her mouth were, I disagree with that. <laughs> So, you know, and, and to your point, then you don't recommend that future idea uh, because people have memories and you know, it's just, you can only go to the well so many times if you're, this is silly. There's no water here. I'm going to go to a different yeah. well. Yeah, that's true. And I think like, you know, me being kind of like a junior at a mid-level employee before I decided to found Mindhatch, you know, I experienced deeply that like, I have water to give, take my water, <laughs> you know? And so, um, But, you know, eventually I decided to take my well and, you know, hydrate myself instead of another company. Yeah. Good stuff. I'll get you out of here on this. What book are you currently reading? Oh, oh, it's so boring. It's not, (laughs) not not boring. It's, I'm finding it interesting, but it's not reflective of what I normally read. But what I'm reading right now is a book called Profit First. Uh, I'm trying to like, uh, redo the way I'm conceiving of Mindhatch's budget and, uh, and that sort of thing. That's what I'm reading right now. Yeah. Kind of like going to the dentist, don't necessarily enjoy it, but you need it. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually enjoying it. I, I just, I just, uh, I'm, I just didn't want to admit it because like normally what I'm reading is a bit more creative or fictional or dare I say interesting. So to, to an yeah. audience. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on, Kano. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However... If you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, and how can you not, please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, and how can you not, please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.